This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. Welcome again to the stream of Trinity Church's service. Uh, If you don't know me, my name is Zach Lutz. I'm the director of family and youth ministries here at Trinity Church. Uh, I gotta say, I really miss you guys. Like, preaching to this camera is a little bit of a bummer. Um, It's actually a huge bummer, Uh, and I can't wait till we can be back together. We have been working through the Psalms our past couple sermons, and we'll continue to do so for the next few weeks. Uh, Today, we will be in Psalm 8, but I wanted to pose a question. Have you ever just been astonished, like awestruck and silenced by something in nature. A few years ago, Margaret and I had the wonderful opportunity to take a three-week camping road trip through the American West. We camped in the Rocky Mountains, camped in Yosemite Valley, hiked Half Dome, stood beneath the Redwoods in Northern California. We hiked the foothills of Mount Rainier, almost froze to death in Yellowstone, and were awoken by coyotes in the Badlands. But one place that stood out among all the rest and really took our breath away was in Glacier National Park. But something went wrong at Glacier this trip. It was on fire that year. You know they have wildfires. Uh, And so many campers were displaced from the east side of the park to the west side. And what that meant for us is that our activities that we had planned, the going to the Sun Road and some other things, if you know uh, Glacier, were closed. Uh, But also our campsite was closed. This whole trip was actually Margarita's first time camping. You should definitely ask her how that went sometime to do three weeks of camping. Uh, But we were displaced to a underdeveloped but not quite backcountry campsite about three miles from the Canadian border and about an hour and a half drive down mountainous, winding dirt roads in a 1998 Toyota Avalon for our campsite. However, what we were greeted with was a lake called Kentla Lake. Glacier-cut mountains framed with this lake at the bottom of crystal-clear glacial meltwater. And motorboats weren't allowed out there. Most people didn't want to make the drive, and it was quiet. And staying there, both of us were kind of struck by how small we were. We seemed awfully insignificant. And maybe that was only amplified when we went back to our small one-bedroom apartment in Kansas to reflect back on that time and go, man, I feel really small. And as believers, I think sometimes we, we, we have this frame of reference in relation to God. Like if God's got Yosemite Valley and Yellowstone and the Milky Way galaxy and the universe to look at, what is man? We seem awfully insignificant. And the beautiful thing about Scripture is that it's written for the people of God, and and we've all kind of asked similar questions throughout all of time. And this particular psalm was written by King David to his people to kind of address this question and reaffirm to his people who they were, how they were cherished by God and what they needed to hear. It was intended to form the people of God. And I would ask at this point, as we read God's word, that you would allow a similar thing to be done. 
This is the word of the Lord in Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also beasts of the field and birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The grass withers and the flowers fade, even the flowers and the grass at Kintla Lake, but the word of the Lord stands forever. So feeling dwarfed by nature is a, is a pretty common experience. I'm sure you've had some experience, even if it may not be something in nature, there's been times in your life that you've really felt insignificant or at least been left wondering, like, how important can I be in the grand scheme of things? David knew that his people asked a similar question, and he, he wrote this psalm, and they, they sang it together. Uh, Ronnie's mentioned this in some of his uh, previous sermons as well, that, that these psalms were poetry and chanted and sung, and much like the songs that we sing, they're intended to teach us something about God. And it's a little bit comforting, just to know off the forefront, <laughs> that other people throughout history have asked similar questions. Other people who have worshipped our God ask these same questions. And the way that David is going to answer this for his people and the way that he's going to build it into this psalm is going to be responding in two ways. So when we're reflecting on how we know our significance, he's going to say you have to know who God is and you have to know who God created man to be or who man is. So starting with God, it's very clear in our first couple of verses who God is. You have set your glory above the heavens and has a majestic name. Now, we do have to reflect on this just a little bit. You know, other ancient deities were the entities that were in the heavens, the sun, the moon, the stars, Venus. Like, you worshiped the most powerful things you could see. And in all honesty, the sun is pretty powerful. It's a pretty powerful thing to worship. But what David is saying is actually God sets his glory above the heavens. And not only that, it's the work of his fingers that crafted the heavens. Verse 3, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. Now, fingers aren't very strong parts of your body. And yet that's all it takes for God to set sun, moon, and stars in place. David is affirming for his people that our God actually is how we think of him. He's, he has all of creation, things that we haven't even dreamt about he knows and he sees and he cherishes. His creation is magnificent. He's a creator God. But not only is he a creator God. In verse 1, it says, O Lord, our Lord. And the first thing that we notice in our English translations of this passage is the word our. 
like this God that they're worshiping is not just, oh, majestic God that we don't know. It's, it's our God, our Lord. But another thing that you can see in our, in our translations, the English Standard Version, the ESV, does this. Various translations do this differently. But that first use of the word Lord is in all caps, and that signifies something very important. It's, it's trying to represent how God describes himself to his people. You see, God gave himself a name in relationship to his people. And it kind of works like this, because it's a little weird. Like, why would we need, if there's only one God, couldn't we just use the word God? Like, why, why would we need something more specific? But when Margaret and I were pregnant with, when Margaret was pregnant, but we were about to have Joaquin, uh, we, you know, called him baby, because we didn't have a name for him. And then we named him eventually, but now a year and a half later, our relationship is much deeper. When I, when I say Joaquin, it actually means something because I've had experiences with Joaquin. I've seen his smile and even his cry. I, I've seen him interact with me. I have cherished memories. So when David uses this all caps word Lord or Yahweh, as it was in Hebrew, is, it's supposed to import that this God is not just any God. This is the God of their father, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's a God that they have a relationship with. So when we're questioning and asking about our significance, the first thing that David turns to is, yes, we have this creator God who made magnificent things, but he chooses to define himself by relationship to his people to you and to me. Now, the natural question is, why? Like, if God's got the sun, and he's got galaxies, and he's got mountains, why would he make relationship with mankind? What is it about man? And that's the question that he asks in verse 4, what is man that you are mindful of him? I mean, I gotta be honest, like at 510, I'm relatively insignificant, even to the mountain at Kindle Lake, which is not one of the biggest ones in the world. Why would God define himself by his relationship to his people? And then why would he choose mankind? The psalm goes on, continuing from verse 4, and the son of man that you care for him. And it says, yet you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over, I'm going to skip a little, beasts of the field, birds of the heavens, and fish of the sea. David here is is intending to reflect his audience back to the creation account. And, you know, there's a lot of scripture. Sometimes I forget the exact words that are used, and maybe you do too, but these words are used there. Dominion, beasts of the fields, birds of the heaven, and fish of the sea. David wants people to think, you know, you know why you're significant to God? You You should look at what we were created to be. That's where you should look. Now, something interesting happens there. And many of you might know, you know, when God uh, creates light and darkness, he says it's good. When he separates the waters, he says it's good. When he creates the land and the plants, he says it's good. When he puts the stars in the heavens, he says it's good. When he makes all the animals, the fish and the birds, he says it's good. But when he gets to mankind, he says it's very good. Now, I don't know about you. I think my default kind of response to that is just like, oh, God had six check boxes that he needed to get through. Man was the last one. And then when he'd done it, very good was just that it was all completed. 
But that's not really what David saw in the creation story. And frankly, I didn't really see at first what David could see. I needed help along the way. And actually, one place that I found help was in a strange place. It's in a genealogy in the Gospel of Luke. And it would be a little strange, you know, to read through the whole genealogy. I'm not going to. Most of the people I don't even know anyway. But what is important is at the very end, it says Seth is the son of Adam. And Adam is the son of God. I think when David was directing his people to the creation account, what he was intending them to see was not just that they were one among equals among the stars and all of creation, but that they had a privileged place. And that privileged place was going to be defined as children. Children of God. And we're told this in lots of other places. The Old Testament will speak of God as kind of this parental figure guiding Israel along its way. And even Jesus will ask us to pray when he teaches us the Lord's Prayer, our Father. We've prayed today, Father. I'm not a perfect father. Uh, I didn't have a perfect father. He didn't have a perfect father either. Some of you may not know your fathers, and some of you probably wish you didn't. When Scripture is asking us to think of God as our Father, when David is asking his people here to remind themselves that they are his children and think of God as their Father, he's asking them to think of the best Father. When we're questioning our significance, a God who defines himself by relationship to his children and thinking of that as the best father we could imagine radically changes how we view our own significance. The best father does not cherish the works of his hands over his very children. He delights in his children. Don't get me wrong. The best father works hard. The best father sets a good example. The best father makes beautiful things, but when his children enter the room, there's delight. The best father, if he's an artist and paints masterpieces, when his daughter comes in and is painting, that is so much more meaningful to him. She's imaging a piece of him. The best father, if he's a businessman and gives his son some seed money for a lemonade stand on the curb, isn't just walking away saying, well, it was pocket change anyway. I don't really care what happens to it. He's deeply involved. He loves watching his children image him, pretend to be him. With all this father language, I I don't intend to shame us who are imperfect fathers. We are imperfect and we, we depend upon our heavenly father who is the best father and who cherishes us. When we question our significance, we not only have to remember who God is and that he defines himself by this relationship, but that he thinks of us as his very children. That's what David wanted his people to know. That's what this psalm is intended to teach you. You are a child 
of God. There is a problem, though. When God created man, you know, he said it was, was very good. Um, but even, even in here, in verse 2, the back half of verse 2 here, you'll see foes, enemies, and avengers. And you know, foes, enemies, and avengers aren't, aren't very good things. They seem to be very bad things. Where did, how did very bad things enter this story? And if we remember our story of Adam and Eve, yeah, they were created very good, but very quickly after, disobedience and death entered and their relationship from their father was radically changed. They were separated from this life-giving relationship. And yet even then, who God is shines through because even in their disobedience, God comes to them and makes them a promise. The foes and enemies of God's children are now his enemies. And he says, I will vanquish this enemy, and I will rescue my children. And David was keenly aware of the dissonance here. If you don't know David's backstory, he was an adulterer and murderer, amongst many other things. But he was this man who rested on the promises of God, imperfect though he was. And we, contrary to the audience that first read this Psalms passage, we have a lot more of Scripture that follows it in a crude sort of example, you know, this much more. And in this privileged place, we get to see some resolutions to these promises. And actually, we've read this passage already, but in Hebrews chapter 2, you can turn there if you would like. I'm going to read verses 5 and following. Now, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little, for a little while lower than the heavenly angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. That's a quote from Psalm 8. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So David and his people sang this song. They sang this psalm and there was a little bit of dissonance in their hearts. They could say, yes, God did make us in this privileged place of creation. Yes, we are his children, but something's terribly wrong, and we're waiting for God to fulfill his promises. And later throughout the Old Testament, they were waiting. They were waiting until the Son of God would come to rescue his brothers and sisters. You see, when we read Psalm 8, not only do we think of who God is and how he defines himself, not only do we reflect upon the privileged place of creation and how God thinks of us when he created us as his children, but even in this psalm, we can be pointed to Jesus who counted us so significant that it would cost him his own life 
because of his love for us, his delight in our presence so that he could call us friends. That's how significant you are in the eyes of God. That is how much he loves you. Please pray with me. Our good Father, you are so good. And it is astonishing that you have put us in this place of privilege among your creation, and it frankly humbles us. And we are astonished by your love for us through the person and work of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior, our older brother, our friend. Allow us to rest in his work on our behalf, to rest when we question our significance, to look to him and know that we are beloved children of God. In whose name we pray, amen.